We could. I wonder how long. No. no. They would put it on. They would put it right above you. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if it's very real. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll uh I, I think we'll go with patience. Yeah. It's moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we won't. Good try. Thank you. Thank you. Anugrihitosmi. Danyavad. Danyavad. Yeah, we can try. That's black, so it probably won't work. Or the door and and this like this. Seems like it's yeah. Let's see. Okay, we don't really need slides, but (laughs) William told me I should use slides, so I've got slides. And uh, <laughs> what's that? I'm recording until William. Okay, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just blame William. <laughs> An old friend and great scholar. You're lucky to have William here, actually, as a, direct, as a director of studies. I think this is his title, right? So, yeah, he's great. All right, so first we start. Any questions? The meaning of life is uh, 42. Yeah. Is consciousness equivalent to awareness? Uh, so there are, you know, we will come, let's come back to that. Okay. We, there are a, a number of different terms, and we will, when we focus on, we'll actually come to that later today, not too long from now. I have one more. Yes? Be my question, we can take it offline if you want. Okay. What do you mean? You think it's not possible, or? I'm doubting it. It says in here it's possible. Yeah. And so what exactly? So a clearer thing about what that state is, a minimal description of that state, is that it is a state in which 
the um, that strictly speaking, karma and klesha have ceased. Okay, so that's the basic. So when we talk about the third noble truth, excuse me, yeah, the third noble truth, the truth of cessation. There are many different ways to talk about cessation. I actually have a, a PhD student who's writing his dissertation on this right now. And uh, the, but a kind of very minimal description that everyone has to agree with is that karma and klesha have ceased. So then, well, what's klesha? We already discussed klesha is... All, there are different accounts of how many, kind, how many different kleshas there are, but, the, but they can all really be reduced to those three poisons, right? They're all forms of confusion slash ignorance attachment slash desire and aversion, right, or dislike, okay? Ignorance, desire, dislike, okay, ADD. <laughs> so, uh, uh, those, those, so when we say the kleshas have ceased, we're saying those three and everything else that's kind of permutations of those three have ceased, okay? Then you need to understand what are those? So, a major question that we're going to come back to may actually today is, do we mean that all acts, all moments of uh, wishing for something or desiring something are, them, are in themselves uh, uh, klesha? Or uh, is there something, is there, are there forms of you, what you might call a non-kleshic desire? Yeah, or even preference, maybe. So, so especially this becomes very important as Buddhism develops and Mahayana arises, the great vehicle arises. The idea that desire in itself is the problem, then some versions of early Buddhism would maintain that in a certain way it's really all about desire or trishna or tanha in Pali, thirst. And it's really wanting something that's the problem, wanting anything. Uh, but Mahayana is going to say it's desire in itself is not the problem. It's afflicted mental states, which means mental states that basically are contaminated by ignorance. So a contaminated desire is a desire that uh, imputes qualities to things that they don't have. So the... What desire does is it exaggerates the positive qualities of a thing. And, what dis- and all the versions of de- everything related to desire, other kleshas related to desire, in- in- impute positive qualities, exaggerate the posi- positive qualities of the desirable thing. Like, you know, oh, this person is just going to make my life perfect if it's, you know, a relationship. And dislike exaggerates the negative qualities of a thing. Like, you know, this person is the worst person in the world. Probably the same person like a year later. But, you know, <laughs> this person is the worst person in... Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, this person is the worst person in the world. Right? Okay? So it's both. It's those together, right? You know, those both are exaggerating qualities. And they all exaggerate one primary quality, which is the idea that the thing exists in and of itself in a non-relational way, like it has a kind of identity in and of itself. That's what we're going to talk about today. 
Okay? So if you eliminate all of those imputations, those exaggerations, then desire and, and you know, dislike meaning, oh, that's not a good thing. And this is a good thing. Good, where good is understood to being good for something, good in some context, not absolutely good, not absolutely got, bad, and also you know, not uh, exaggerating how good it is. Like, oh, you know, water, I'm thirsty. That I should, I want water. Uh, water, of course, doesn't exist like some kind of absolute entity. It's a relational, interdependent entity. Uh, and it's not going to, like, solve all of my problems. But when I'm thirsty and I want to drink water, that's fine. So, if you think of cessation as cessation of those kinds of kleshas, right? Where it's, we're not, we're in a sense, not exaggerating the qualities of things and we're not essentializing existence itself, that doesn't seem so implausible. And then, and then if then intentions mean where I'm, where an intention is arising caught up in a, um, caught up in that whole kleshic world of exaggeration, then uh, can we have like non-kleshic intention? Does intention, does karma means intention? Can I have intentions that are not caught up in that? Yes, certainly. However, that kind of reduces, that does give us a certain sort of almost like, you know, kind of psychological uh, well-being version of cessation which certainly seems attainable, but the tradition is going to want to say more, right? So that it's really, and that's fine to think of it in those terms, but it's going to be more radical than that because uh, it's not just ending the imputations. It's kind of seeing through the whole fabric of reality. And it's, no, and it's in a sense, no longer needing to be, a, the, one of the ideas of intention is it's caught up in control. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm the controller. I'm the decider, like George Bush used to say, right? You know, I'm the decider. And uh, that is, that, if, if, if it's possible, it's a way of thinking about intention where that's the only kind of intention you can have. Intentions always involve, I'm the decider, which is false. There is no decider. So, not in that sense of there being an isolated controlling entity. So, uh, uh, in that case, then, it becomes more inconceivable. Yes, it becomes more difficult to understand a kind of radical transformation of a person who's truly awakened, who is, you know, not operating in the way we operate. Yes. Uh, What's he doing with it? He's quickly transforming it into, yes, I understand why this has to happen. Uh, if you had a, let's say you were plant a garden and you have some lovely daisies and uh, then the seasons change and the daisies die. Do you experience grief from the dying of the daisies? Really? Does, how much sense does that make? Do you know what would, if the daisies didn't die, you know what would not happen? They would not be born. I allow them to 
Uh-huh. But part of what it means to be a daisy is that it's, it, it's in that cycle. If it weren't in that cycle, it wouldn't be a daisy. So... But uh, so yeah. I don't know that that's a pain. I don't think that's an inevitable pain at all. To be to feel pain when somebody dies is not. An, I don't think is an inevitable pain. I'll be honest. Well, I do it, not. But it's not. No. I wouldn't say it's unwholesome. I know. I, I, it, I mean, I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it's unwholesome. I think it, it is, you know, you certainly want to, wouldn't want to... Um, so here's a very dysfunctional kind of reaction to people's deaths. That is not what I'm talking about, which is uh, where, uh, you know, you kind of just say, oh, don't, let's have a party, it's great, everything's fine, don't worry about it, you know, where you basically one is kind of suppressing the pain, the grief... By doing that. Here's another dysfunctional version. I'm with a bunch of people who are very sad at somebody's funeral or whatever, and I like go, oh, you know, I don't feel sad. Like I don't participate. I don't I'm not empathetically participating in what they're experiencing. That would also be not what we're talking about. So if you're with a bunch of other sentient beings who are experiencing that kind of grief, to not participate with them. To not empathize with them would be is not what we're talking about because that would be someone who's locked into a perspective, but to be there and to 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 in a sense on one's own generate that kind of pain that is not necessary, right? That's the key here is that 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 is the the natural cycle of how we are operating in samsara. So what we could say is well is there what are the other options? Who knows? What is it to transcend that kind of life? And one version of this, one version of nirvana is that you're beyond death. It's the amrta, it's the undying. Right? And one of the four forms of human suffering is birth, old age, sickness, and death. So the idea that somehow, you know, death is painful is certainly there. But that's mostly about us, not about experiencing other people's death. It can be that too, of course. But that would be, you know, the point that I'm trying to make is the, the idea, which is actually quite, I think, maybe a little common in sort of modern Buddhism, that, oh, pain and suffering are inevitable. That's really not in the Mahayana perspective. They're not inevitable. It is not necessary. Does that mean that when I see the Dalai Lama uh, and, you know, someone's unhappy, he just says, oh, shake it off, you know. And not at all. He completely participates. I've seen him cry, you know. But that's not, in, but I've also had these kinds of conversations with him. And it's not because he's crying for himself. He's crying in participation with somebody else. So that's, I think, the key. Like, from his own side, that's, you know, to, be, to cry at, at, the, at the death of the daisies doesn't really work for him. It's not what he does. 
He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't experience that that way. I'm quite confident. But until we get to that point, we need compassion too for ourselves. Right? So where, where in this process do we avoid suppression, okay. bypass? Now I'm going to get myself in huge trouble. Huge trouble. Can you just wait? Let me we'll do this. Huge trouble. Okay. I wrote an article about compassion and self-compassion. It's in Mindfulness Journal, and I can share it with you. I wrote it with my, one of my graduate students. And it, there is no self-compassion in Buddhism. Doesn't exist. Does not exist. I know. You've been told otherwise. Does not exist. Karuna is always other-oriented. And it is never about self. So you can objectify yourself and then turn yourself into an object of compassion. I have not found a text in which that happens. There is one text, one text, one Tibetan text. I have not found any Indian text in which that happens. There's one Tibetan text in which that you, you kind of objectify your future self and say, you know, don't make life hard for that person. But, but so the, the, so the perspective, the, the, the Buddhist perspective, I think, across all the schools is that karuna is about, have, is, is subject-object. There is a form of compassion in Mahayana that is non-dual compassion, but then obviously it's not self-compassion. So otherwise, if you're compassion for somebody... It's always for someone who's the object of your compassion. And if you're doing that, then you are objectifying yourself. And psychologically, we know that's, that's that kind of, the more self-focus you have of that kind, the more likely you are to be depressed. So more self-focus is probably not the solution. So, so... What do you say that? But then the unique situation we find ourselves in, in that the Tibetan. So when the Dalai Lama was, this is a long discursus. I'm excursus, like a little bit of a distraction, but it's probably worth talking about. When the Dalai Lama first encountered this with Sharon Salzberg, actually in a meeting in the early '90s, she was she's the one who said, you know, oh, but you know, like he asked, like one of the problems you're experiencing. He said, well, we encounter a lot of people who really, you know, hate themselves. And his response was, no, they don't. He like, Dalai Lama, he did not get it. It took like 30 minutes to, for him to get it in translation. And then he went like, oh, that's terrible. You know, but so uh, they, as a, yeah, as, as a cultural construct or a cultural phenomenon, they just don't understand that idea. Now that said, yeah. that's compassion. Right? Yeah. That said, Buddhism is in Yes. And, and, and the response to that is the path out of that suffering. Correct. Okay, so that's, that's called renunciation. Right. So renunciation, so I have some colleagues, Tibetan colleagues, who've developed, uh, Geshe Lawson Tenzin, who's developed cognitive-based compassion training, and Tupton Jimpa, Geshe Tupton Jimpa, who at Stanford developed, uh, I forget what it's called, but some other compassion training. And they... Both of them, I believe, sort of said, well, we could think of renunciation as self-compassion. What renunciation is, is recognizing suffering and saying, I want to get the heck out of here. 
like your hair is on fire. But there are a couple of different things. One of them is, that's not self-objectification. You're not saying, oh, look at yourself, you're feeling bad, you should run out of the house. It's, all, it's like first-person standpoint. You're, my hair, my hair, not your hair, my hair is on fire, i got to get out of here. That's one thing. Second thing, modern self-compassion practices often in a lot of, and involve a lot of soothing. And the whole point of renunciation is not to soothe you. It's to actually get you really activated. So the images of self, like hair on fire, is not a soothing image, in case you didn't notice. So it's not about self-soothing at all, renunciation. So that's so from my point of view, that's problematic. But what we face, so I just want to be clear that self-compassion, maybe we need now, but we need to be very clear about what, why. The reason we need it is this phenomenon that if you took a thousand Tibetans and you said, okay, everybody, who thinks they don't deserve to be happy? Like, no, they would go, what? What's the crazy Westerner asking? They wouldn't understand, even understand the question. No, deserve. They would never understand the idea that someone would think they don't deserve to be happy. It's like, what? It's a very self-focused. It's very, very self-focused. That's not necessarily blaming anybody. I hope not, the Buddha. <laughs> he said, no, no one deserves your love more than you. You may search a whole, whole world and no one deserves your... Where is that? Uh, everybody cool. <laughs> ah, yeah, that may be one of those... <laughs> that was Jack Kornfeld who said, if your compassion does not include yourself, it is... Well, yeah, I mean, that's Jack, and that's fine, but I'd like to see the text. It's not text. <laughs> it's not text. <laughs> yeah, so that's modern... Yeah, that's... That's not the. I promise you, you're not going to find a Buddhist text that says that. Yeah. Yeah. You opened a can of My fault. So, yes. So, so yeah. So this is so what I understand to be the problem is. So if you take a thousand Tibetans and you say, "Who thinks they don't deserve to be happy?" They go like, "I don't understand what you're talking about." The idea that you could think that the idea of deserving or not deserving doesn't make any sense to them. But what's that? You could find a whole bunch of people. I don't know how many percent. Actually, we should find out. I really think that would be an interesting thing to find out. You would find a large percentage of people who would say, you know, I don't deserve to be happy. I deserve to be, I, you know, I just don't deserve it. And that is the problem. Which the, 
Because the question really is not whether there's self-compassion or not in, in, in Buddhist texts. There's, there's really no question that there isn't. The question is, why isn't there? When it seems so obvious that we need it. And the reason we need it is that we, a large percentage of us think, we don't deserve to be happy. And that quite, so then the question is, how do you fix that? And one way to fix that is maybe to say, hey, treat yourself like you would anyone else. The problem with that psychologically is it's this self-objectification, which is the mechanism that's creating the sense that I don't deserve to be happy. Because I'm objectifying myself and I'm telling a negative story about myself and thinking that that's the truth about who I am. So another solution is, which is more difficult, is basically selflessness. But that runs up against very strong Western you know, fixation on self. So it's a difficult situation. So I'm not saying, I just want to be clear, I'm not saying that self-compassion, that we don't need something, and maybe self-compassion is what we need, but it's, got, it's dangerous. And it's really confusing to tell people that it's Buddhist, because that's definitely not true. Yeah. As soon as you open your mouth, you know, yes. with all of your learning. But I think that what I think is, I hadn't thought of this before, but American Buddhism is fabulous. I mean, what, I mean, what has happened here is unbelievably beautiful. And one of the, I think it's an evolution, just on thinking along with everybody. I think self-compassion is Buddhist. It's American Buddhism. I think it's evolved. I would say in Asia, this was a blind spot that people were people were miserable with themselves. I'm sure. Now, but it's a but it's a collective. I don't know about this. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Hold it. Hold it. I'm not sure, but but it's a uh, it's a different culture. It's it doesn't emphasize the self. It, it's That's it right. Emphasizes the whole. So maybe it's 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 not acceptable to speak about yourself. I, I my well, intuition is there were plenty of people that were more self-oriented in China and Japan that had oh, to silence yeah. themselves. So I think this is a blind spot. In the it could be. It could. Be, it's possible, but it's it. We probably would get. You'd think you'd get some evidence of it, and we don't. There's really no evidence. Like, you really can't find anything. I've looked a lot, and you really can't find anything that indicates that, sorry, that the, uh, uh, you know, that this was a thing for them. Go ahead, yeah. Of something that I couldn't even see outside of myself is actually 
something completely different. I think that's what we're actually dealing with here. I don't know because my familiarity with Asian culture is very limited. That, like, yeah. I think as a thought experience, and also, I bump up against some sort of political ideas about other and, and self and projecting my culture onto other people's culture, but that's where sort of the whoa, whoa, whoa was coming from. But actually, I think as a thought uh, and meditative experience, rather than assume these people are like us in how they are encountering these ideas, and therefore they must have had these thoughts and just not spoken them, I think it's more useful to take their words and say, okay, what if they're not, and what can we learn from that? Because I think it's like, because I, when I'm listening to this, what I'm, where I'm going is like, my hair is on fire. I mean, my cultural solution is creating this object, but what can we learn from not doing it? What can we learn from that exercise? In terms of a sort of efficiency, of not projecting that problem out and time traveling and having a whole long conversation with yourself and indulging in your own sort of yeah, masturbatory self-conversation about trauma, which of course we all do, right? And forgive my word, I couldn't think of a different word to describe that. But like, um, but rather to say, what's the solution that we're it's, yeah, so I think that what I really appreciated about what you said, and we'll probably move on from this conversation soon, but what I really appreciate is the idea that it's really, the cultural differences are very profound. Like, one of the things that I like, one of the ways that, so, so again, just to clarify, what I see as the issue is that there's a particular way of having an identity in our culture, but especially among what's called weird people, which means Western-educated, rich uh, industrialized democracies. And not everyone in the United States is weird. There are subcultures in the U.S. who are not that weird. But we in this room appear to be quite weird. <laughs> and there are certain psycho- very specific psychological features. You can read the, there's a book by Joe Henrich, at, uh, uh, Joe Henrich at Harvard called The Weirdest People in the World. And the first couple of chapters talks about the psychology of weird people. And we are weird. Like We are not like the rest of the world, both now and historically. We're not like the rest of the world. And one of the things that we do is we really objectify ourselves because we live in such a hyper-individualistic society that also has very high expectations for each individual. I like to call that the Lake Wobegon effect. You remember, you know, it's Lake Wobegon... Yeah, where all the men are beautiful, all the women are strong, and all the children are above average. So we're all above average. Everyone gets a medal, you know. That thing actually has been really probably very destructive for our culture because we're not all above average. Like, I can't play the piano. So, yes, I'm sorry, you had wanted to say something. And then, Stephen, and then we're going to move on.
Thank you. What is your name? Michelle. Michelle. Uh, so, yes, that's wonderful, Michelle. That's a, one of the... So just even the reference to ancestors, like, you don't hear that from United people in America very much at all, right? So that's one, if you read Heinrich's, Heinrich's Joe's book, that's exactly one of the main differences, is that there's this sense of being embedded in a temporal lineage of ancestors who, in a sense, you know, I am bigger than me. I'm part of that whole thing. That's what we call a collectivist identity. And there are drawbacks to that too, but, it, but one of the things that it does insulate one from is some of this very negative self-focus. So it's not our fault. I mean, the ironic thing would be to say, oh, to be told, you know, you're an American with excessive self-focus and a negative story about yourself, and that's why you feel bad. And then you blame yourself for being an American. With it. So you don't want to do that. But you want to be, or an American, or, you know, basically, it's sort of cosmopolitan Euro-American society. There's less of this in Europe, some parts of Europe more than less. There tends to be somewhat less, but it's kind of one of our exports, unfortunately, like, you know, jeans and t-shirts and rock and roll. We're all also exporting this kind of thing. But there's, there tends to be less of it in Europe. But, uh, so, the, I'm not saying that, you know, it's our fault, or, I mean, collectively, maybe it is, but, I mean, we didn't make American culture. But it is a thing that puts us in a difficult situation. And so maybe self-compassion is the right thing, but we need to understand why we need it and why it wasn't in Buddhism. Or maybe what we need is also like, you know, an ability to drop the story about the self and say, look, this whole thing about like, I don't deserve to be happy is BS. Like, where did that come from? Who, who decided to say that? Like, it's just a ridiculous idea. Actually, it's your sentient being. You, you want to be happy, period. Like, no problem. <laughs> but anyway, Stephen, yes? So just to be brief and to bring this back to yeah. Buddhism a little bit. Yeah. You told the story yesterday when the Buddha, after his life, it ran into some guy. The guy said, oh, you're right, that's, that's nice, good for you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Yes. Okay. And then we'll take two more and then, then we'll stop. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. But I, can I just say about Stephen, I think that's an excellent point, which is one of the things that we can get caught up in is like, what's a Buddha? What's an Arhat? You know, what's it like? And that's good. We do want to think about that. But at a certain point, it's just kind of fantasy. And just a lot of like thinking. And we don't, it's not always helpful. I try to steer my students away from like getting too fixated on what Buddha is, Buddhahood is and instead talking about what's it like to be on the path, right? 
you know, there are versions even of the Bodhisattva vow which are literally impossible, like the Zen style. Uh, beings are limitless. I vow to free them all. It's like, uh, what? <laughs> so, in some ways, it's saying like that goal, if you try to figure out the goal, what it really is, you know, that's not going to help. So there's something to that, uh, definitely. Yeah, so Michelle and then, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. I transmutation I've seen a lot, which of something into suffering into mm. suffering. But do you have to go to suffering? Does suffering have to come first? And I think that's where there's that's what I was asking. Yeah, I mean we begin with suffering because that's what causes us to be to have enunciation. It's like, yeah, you you know, the first truth is no suffering. Like admit it. And if you don't start there, then you can't. But the idea that you always need to have suffering, it, that it's inevitable, that I think is not really consistent even with early Buddhism, but it's certainly not consistent with Mahayana. Like, no, at some point we're going to be able to not live in a way where it's all about me and my suffering. And so maybe it's about other people's suffering, and I'm resonating with them. So there are even poetic versions where it says, you know, whether this works out philosophically is another thing. But a poetic version that says, I think it's by Matracheta, you know, the Buddha is pained by the pain of sentient beings. Like the Buddha has suffering through his compassion. You know, whether that works out logically or whatever is another question. But the image is like, yeah, we're, you know, we're... If we're, the bodhisattva's goal is to relieve the suffering of sentient beings, that doesn't mean the bodhisattva should be overwhelmed by the suffering of sentient beings. But it also doesn't mean the bodhisattva just goes, ah, you know, whatever. You suffering sentient beings, get over it. That's not the idea. But to be not, you know, like, compulsively caught and to think that it's inevitable, that's the thing that is really the, one of the radical changes that is being proposed. And that may be very difficult to teach. It's a very famous uh, set of verses that the Buddha spoke after he became awakened. And actually, I was at a retreat with Trikhanimadur Bhaji, in which he repeatedly cited those, recited those verses. And he said it was profound, it was subtle, it was stainless, it was luminous. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And that, that you know, this kind of dharma, I think I'm just going to go carefree and live in the woods because no one's going to understand what I said. And 
Yeah, they're in the Lalita Vistara. I can send them to you. Yeah. Uh, you'll have to remind me. Yes. Then, yeah. Sorry, we had one here, and then in in the back, Michelle, and then we'll stop. Yeah. You sure? Yeah, that's we're good. That's good. That's a good transition to what we're going to talk about. Yes, Michelle. Yeah. Thank you, yes. I mean, that's, yes, thank you very much. There's so much we could say, but I think we should move on. Uh, so what I will say is we're gonna, we've been talking about selflessness, and I want to address something that you just said. And I'm going to go back to the slides in a minute. But I, I, I'll, let me address this in terms of, so I have renunciation, which is, again, which we could, is kind of like self-compassion, but I've described the ways in which it's different. I feel pain, and I'm motivated. I don't think I don't deserve to be free of pain. That's just not part of the model. <laughs> you know, it's just assumed automatically, of course, you want to be free of the pain. So you feel it, and you're going to do something to get out of it. So, of course, you need to recognize it first, right? So that's the first noble truth. And then you, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to figure out how to get out of it, and that's the rest of the truths, and then, or the second and the fourth, like, Here's the origin, here's the thing to get out of, get rid of the origin, and then you're out of it, and that's cessation, right? So that's kind of the basic model. But when you're saying renunciation, what are you having renunciation for? Well, one way to think about this is what do you have compassion for? 
So there are three forms of compassion uh, that are articulated in the Mahayana. I don't know if they're in somewhere in the Pali Canon. They might be. One form of compassion, so compassion is always about somebody else. And one form of and compassion, the, the technical definition of compassion is the desire that somebody else be free of suffering. So that's, that form of technical definition is focused on persons. So we have compassion for a person. That's the lowest level of compassion. The next level, in terms of its subtlety and efficacy, actually, the next level of compassion is you don't have compassion for persons. You have compassion for dharmas. You have compassion for all of the elements that constitute the person. Because that's what's there, right? So instead of like thinking there's just a single person there that one has objectified and maybe attributed various kinds of traits to or telling a story about, you have a compassion for all of this psychophysical stuff, right? Over there, so to speak. So this psychophysical stuff is experiencing compassion. Compassion is arising here for all of that psychophysical stuff. And then the, so there's not compassion in that case. It's not actually a person having compassion for a person. And then the highest level of compassion is called objectless compassion. And that's going to make sense for us when we uh, um, go a little bit more into Mahayana. But basically that's where it's not no longer actually even about, you know, there aren't really ultimately existent elements even. And yet there is compassion as almost a kind of baseline connectivity. So that's the highest level of compassion, the subtlest level of compassion, and the most efficacious level of compassion. It's the kind of compassion that a Buddha has. So in that case then also, I mean, interestingly, it's not going to really be self-compassion because there isn't self and other, but it does sort of tell us about that idea of resonating, where compassion is about resonance, is about feeling with somebody. Compassion, literally, is what that means. Right? So... We'll try to explore that some more later. Compassion is going to be an extremely important aspect of Mahayana Buddhism. And, uh, let's, but let's finish a little bit more about selflessness. Uh, that was a, a, a long discussion, but maybe worth having. Actually, you know what? Maybe we should, because it's already almost 10. Why don't we take a break? And, uh, you know, I'll adjust. It'll be fine. Uh, You'll just miss all the really good stuff. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and uh, uh, so let's take a five-minute break. Come back a couple of minutes before 10 if you can. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.